0: Good morning, church. I'm Pastor Dan on vacation, and thank you, Mike, for doing a great job of filling in. So appreciated so much, and um, just helping us to praise the Lord and worship Jesus. And Julie's a little under the weather today, so wasn't feeling great. So I gave her the day off. Uh, she needs one from me from time to time, as you might imagine. But um, I'm grateful for your prayers and uh, for your encouragement. And I want you to get your Bibles now. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about the imitation of Christ. So, Ephesians chapter 5, the essence of the Christian life is found in these first few verses of Ephesians 5. What does it look like to be a Christian? Now, in the book of Ephesians, we have covered a lot of ground, a lot of doctrinal ground. How you become a Christian, what God does to bring you to himself, to regenerate your heart so that you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so there are a lot of intricacies of doctrine that we covered that are absolutely essential. And when you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, his order is always that. He starts with doctrine and then he gets to the way of life that proceeds from that doctrine. And so it should remind us again and again of this important truth we can't live rightly if we do not believe rightly and so you you and I must put in the work and go through the pain of grasping the doctrine and teaching of the apostles so that then generated from that we will have a life that is pleasing to God the Christian life is no easy life but could there be a higher calling Could there be a greater purpose? Could there be a clearer aim than this? Be imitators of God. Could there be anything that God could possibly tell us to do that would be a higher privilege, that would be a grander scheme or purpose for life? And we have that here right at the beginning of this chapter. Now, being imitators of God, Let's back up to what I just said now. Let's talk about doctrine. If you do not have solid biblical doctrine of God, then you're going to imitate the God of your imagination. And the God of your imagination, while you are fooling yourself and deceiving yourself into thinking you're being very Christian in your behavior, you are actually paying homage to yourself. Nebuchadnezzar and worshiping a God of your own imagination we cannot skip the doctrine and just say well just love each other what does that mean exactly on what basis would we do that for what reason you see you have to know who you are who God is and what he has done for you and know it rightly in order to imitate him correctly So that's the reason why the doctrine at the beginning of this book, we must master that as far as humans can so that when it comes time for the commands of the Bible, uh, chapter 5 here being one of them, we have a command here given to us that we'll know actually how to carry it out. It's not good enough just to have good intentions. We must be accurate in what we do. If you are the kind of person who is a professing Christian, and you do not pick up your Bible for any kind of study during the week, how in God's name can you imitate the God that you know nothing about? God will constantly and progressively reveal His person, His character to you, so that your behavior can conform to Him. As long as you take advantage of the means that He's given you to reveal Himself, He's given to you the Bible. The Holy Spirit interpreting the Bible for you. He's given you the church so that the church will help you to not misunderstand what the Holy Spirit says. He gives you teachers. He gives you preachers. He gives you the Lord's Supper. He gives you baptism. He gives you the fellowship of the saints. He gives you all of these means. And if you neglect any of them, you will have a misunderstanding of God. The problem that we have among Christians today is not that they're not trying to imitate God. They just don't know who God is so they can imitate him. They're making it up based upon their own emotions, their own feelings, and some kind of crazy Christian book that somebody has published recently. It's interesting how people will read 20 chapters of religious garbage and you can't get them to read six chapters of the book of Ephesians. I'm a little miffed about that. Doctrine precedes deeds or else we have misdeeds. So, give yourselves, as the early church did in Acts chapter 2, give yourselves to the apostles' doctrine. Study it. Understand what you can. What you can't understand, just say, God, I don't understand that yet. And God will give it to you at the right time. And I want to say to you, there are mysteries in the Scriptures that we'll never understand until we get to heaven. But there is plenty, plenty, plenty in there that we can understand by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit of God. Now, let's get to the text. And by text, I do not mean what's on your phone. I mean the text that's given to us by God that's in your Bible. Here we are, and we're talking about the imitation of Christ. And we have, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, this exhortation to imitation. We're exhorted, we're commanded to imitate. Now let's look at these first two verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The exhortation to imitation. Now, it begins here, therefore. And so, uh, the therefore uh, connects back to chapter 4, as God and Christ forgave you. And so, that topic there of God and what He has done for us in Christ and has forgiven us because of the sacrifice of Christ in our stead, in our place, and Christ having absorbed the wrath of God for all that follow Him, Based upon that, God can rightly and justly forgive. Without the cross of Christ, there is no just forgiveness. If we take the cross of Christ out of forgiveness, therefore, we have a God who participates in unrighteousness. So the cross of Christ is central here. What Christ has done for sinners is central here. So therefore, based upon that, based upon what God has done for us in Christ, Based upon that then comes the command here based upon what he has done be imitators of God as beloved children we learned in the early in the book of Ephesians why God has called you why God has chosen you and called you to be what to be adopted children that's his purpose for you just be his child just belong to him Now, what is the manner of invitation? What's it to look like? As beloved children, this command here is an ongoing action, so it means something like to ever be imitators of God or always be imitators of God or keep on being imitators of God. Mimic Him. Now, we know this, that in imitating God, what we're talking about is similarity. We're, We're not talking about duplication. Do you understand the difference between those two things? We, we can never imitate God to the point of Godhood. But we can imitate God in similarity. There are things about God that our lives can reflect in a similar fashion. Not to the perfection of Him, but in a similar fashion. Now we have talked before about there are attributes of God that are not communicable. He, 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 omniscience we never are going to get that omnipresence we don't have that pastors are supposed to have that skill but we don't we don't have those things omnipotence we we we're not none of us are all powerful we we don't have those things so they're, perfect holiness that's that's god we don't have those things and so those attributes are never going to be given to us communicate you know how disease is a communicable disease it means one that catches or spreads And so these attributes are not spreadable. You can't catch them from God. But there are attributes of God. There are aspects of God's character. His moral character. That we can have similarity to. Not to the level that he is of course. But similarity. And he tells us here. That the manner that we are to do this. Is like little children. As beloved children. Now what do children do? They imitate their parents. Now notice you you have a little boy, he hangs around his dad a lot. The next thing you know, the little boy walks like him, sounds like him, even starts dressing like him. The little boy is not able to attain the exact quality and the exact ability of his father. He can't. The father is so far beyond the little child that the little child cannot duplicate what his father does. But the little boy can reflect some of the characteristics of his father in a similar fashion. He can imitate him and look similar to him. And this is the very manner that we are to imitate God. We are to, like little children, copy him. Like little children, we are to watch him and know him. And let those similarities then be what we do with our lives. Look at the method of this imitation. He tells us the specific sphere that he wants to concentrate on. The the, the place that he wants us most to be similar to God. And verse 2 tells us this method. And walk in love. You see, the manner of imitation is like little children. Imitate God like little children do. But now, the method of it is to walk in love. What, What does that mean? To walk in love. This This means to live our lives in the realm of selflessness. The word love here is not the emotional type of thing. This is not sentimentalism. This is a decision that we make. Our emotions often attach to that decision, absolutely. But emotions can never be the train, can never be the engine of the train, it's always the caboose. We we, we don't want to X out emotions. We don't want to act like emotions don't matter. They do matter. But that's not what the Bible is telling us here. It's not telling us to, to walk in phileo. It's telling us to walk in agape. And agape is the kind of love that God has demonstrated to us. And you see the supreme example as Christ loved us. And what does love look like? Here's the the definition of agape love. And gave himself up for us. And then it defines that giving up the effect. It was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, this is the example of love. But let me hasten to say... That Christ did not die on the cross just as a moral example or a motivating moment in history. He's not a martyr that is supposed to stir up passion in us to go out and be like him. But what this is saying is this. Yes, Christ offers the supreme example. He got nothing out of the cross. He gave everything on the cross. It was voluntary, it was substitutionary, and it was penal. It did exactly what God demanded of sinners that sinners could never do. Christ did it for sinners. And that is the fact that motivates us. Not just the idea that Christ loved us and sacrificed Himself for us as a martyr might do. It's beyond that kind of thing. It is that we have now received the love of God. We have now been forgiven as we saw in chapter 4 and verse 32. We have now been cleansed from our unrighteousness. We have now been forgiven as sinners. We now belong to the family of God. And that example of what Christ has done for us is therefore should be in our spiritual DNA. That this is the kind of people that we will be. We will be like the one who saved us and gave himself for us. This is the method Walk in love. Live a lifestyle of selflessness. Selflessness. We're not talking about soupy sentimentalism here. We're not talking about emotional reactions. We're talking about the gritty action of doing what the person needs even though they deserve the opposite. Christians fail to demonstrate this kind of love when we go on a mission trip. We're far more moved by the poverty of their bodies than the poverty of their souls. It's easy to feel sorry for people who are living in hard conditions and feel guilt because we don't. And this may move us to an act of kindness, but beloved... That moving to an act of kindness is the same kind of motivation that an unsaved person can have. Now, I'm not saying don't ever meet physical needs. I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying here. But I'm saying to you and to me, that is the lowest level of love. What we're talking about here is when you look a man in the eye, perhaps he's a Muslim, he's an enemy of the cross. He profames the, the name of God. He blasphemes Jesus. And yet you, by God's grace, explain to him the mercy of God in Christ. That is love. When you look at your enemy as your brother, that is love. Not wanting him to perish. Even though he hates Jesus. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Here's the thing. Christians are not called to just be good people. The definition of a Christian is not a good person. That's not the definition of a Christian. I know some Buddhists that are good people. All all religions and all societies have their moral ethic. And there are people in those societies that follow those strictly and are good neighbors and are good for our society and are good for our community. Being a good person is not what we're aiming at here. Everybody tries to do that in some shape, form, or fashion. We have a lot of good people in the world as far as social good is concerned. But as Christians... We're not just to be good. We're commanded to imitate God. And that imitation requires sacrifice on our part. It requires, as Jesus has, it requires giving ourselves away. This is the way that is most manifest, and most manifest the love of God through us, is by selfless living. Not considering just our own things, but looking upon the needs of others, as Philippians tells us. To be like Christ, who emptied himself of the privileges of deity and the king of heaven in order to become a man, even a servant, and to submit himself in obedience to the cross. That's what we're called to do. Christianity is nothing less than the death of the independent self and the resurrection. Of a child who imitates God. That's what Christianity does. If you're trying to live a good life and you have no thoughts about imitating God, how in God's name do you call yourself a Christian? I mean, thank you for being kind. I mean, thank you for not running me off the road. Thank you for not spitting on my burger at Five Guys. Thank you if you clean the restroom once a month thank you for those things. Thank you for being a good neighbor. Thank you for bringing my mail over when it's in the wrong mailbox. Thank you for loaning me your leaf raker. Thank you for coming over and mowing my yard. Thank you for all the kind things that anyone would do. I I don't belittle those things. But those are the common good things that people do in the Midwest. We're called to something else and that is to be imitators of God. Now, in imitating God, also, the Bible shows us that we must reject sinfulness. So the rejection of sinfulness is this next section of Scripture. And remember, this all ties together. Walking in love. This is the opposite of walking in love. What does it look like to not walk in love? And the Bible doesn't give us everything here, but it it does give us these things. these, These issues were especially germane or applicable to the Ephesians. And I would say they're probably applicable to Americans as well. He says, but, on the other hand, what's the opposite of walking in love? But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. We must imitate God in holiness, not only in love, but in holiness God said, be in the process of becoming holy as I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Well, he tells us here our walk must be pure. He says, he lists, he's a catalog of sins here. And what does he say? He says that in verse 3, these things must not even be named among you. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you can never say these words. We just read them. It means that we should not participate in them at all, ever. Christians should give no room for these things. The word sexual immorality here covers all kinds of sexuality. It it technically means prostitution in its narrowest sense. You may hear some uh, preacher preach that uh, the word is uh, uh, porneo, which is... uh, obviously a cousin of pornography but do not focus it down on just one thing the word is much broader than that it means every kind of sexual immorality impurity is mentioned here and impurity is filthiness of any kind coveting is actually idolatry the scripture here is telling us greed is uh, covetousness is greed and greed is affection that's placed on the material world rather than on the Lord the Bible tells us, Jesus said, we can't serve God and money both. We can't be a servant to both of those things. Note that these are not to be committed by us at all as Christians. They're not to be named. The acts must not be permitted in our lives. We must not permit them. We must not give any room for them. He tells us also that our, not only must our walk be pure, but our talk must be clean let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. And instead of that, what should come out of our mouths is thanksgiving. You know, I, found it, I find it hard to be wrong in my speech when I'm thanking God. When I have a heart of thanksgiving, an attitude of gratitude, and I'm thanking God for things, you know, it's, it's, it's easy when somebody cuts you off in traffic to just lose your mind. But maybe when you get to Walmart, you can say, Lord, thank you for getting me here in spite of that crazy person. You know, we don't ever think about Thanksgiving, do we? And so thankfulness is what needs to come from our mouths. Now, these words, filthiness, that means obscenity. Some of us like to excuse ourselves and our language here by saying things like this. Well, I was in the Navy God is like, okay, no filthiness or foolish talk. Unless you're in the Navy, then it's okay. Some of us will say, it's how I grew up. Or it's just my personality or whatever. The Bible's not giving us those excuses here. We are to imitate God in our lives and with our lips. Crude joking here, you see that. It's speaking of words that contain sexual innuendos. It's clear that we must reject, as Christians, all these kinds of behaviors. See, we live in a world now that these things actually seem small, don't they? We live in a society in which sexual immorality is promoted, impurity is laughed at, greed is admired. We live in a world in which whatever our language may be, whatever we may say, whatever comes out of our mouth, seems like a minor thing. It seems like nothing. Like What are you so worried about? What are you so uptight about? You're so legalistic, pastor. I'm not making this up. It's legalism if I make it up. Now, some of you after this are going to come to me and say, can I say this? Please spare me. Please spare me. The rule is we are to imitate God. Would God say these things? Would God stand around making crude jokes? Would God stand around with the word foolish means godless talk? Would God stand around doing that? Could you see Jesus in in, in that circle with you as you talk? Would he be okay with it? Of course not. You know better. I mean, do you drop the F-bomb on Jesus when you're praying to Him? I hope not. This is not about cleaning up when you come to church. This is about the way we live always, whether someone's watching or not. This is not trying to impress people. This is trying to imitate God. And He knows whether we're doing it or not. It's clear that as Christians, we must reject all these behaviors. Why? Why should we reject them? Why? Here's the reason. Christ died for us to forgive us of those things. Do we want to just keep putting him on the cross over and over again? As Christians, are we going to just take such liberty with ourselves That we just sort of presume upon the blood of Christ as if, oh, it's got it covered. But Christ died for us. Why did He die? So that we'd be adopted into the family of God and be His beloved children. And as beloved children, we would imitate Him. That's the whole purpose of Christianity. Now again we're not saying you do these things to get saved. We're not saying you do these things to get into the kingdom of God. But in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, when we get in the kingdom of God and we become a brother of Christ, it should rub off on us a little bit. Someone said one time, what would it be like as a Christian if for every one of us we had to stand before God and God had all of our deeds secret and open on a video and played it on the screen for everybody to see well i would say to you this i hope that's not the case because if i'm in front of you in line y'all going to be standing there a long time i wish i sinned less I I wish that there, there are tons of sins in my life that I've committed in my lifetime that if I could do anything, if there's one thing I could do in life, I would undo that. I've never sinned and thought, boy, I hope I can do that again. I've never looked back on my sin and thought, oh, that was great. Why did I ever stop that? I have been born for something else. I have been given a new birth to live a different way. Not out of obligation, but out of love. The way that God has loved me must in my heart and life create a love back to Him that's willing to imitate Him with my life. And the same should go for you. This is not preacher talk. This is Christian talk. We are to imitate our Heavenly Father. Not even our earthly one. Our earthly ones let us down, don't they? My boys used to think I was a superhero. My wife had convinced them that I was really Batman. They didn't know. But they grew up and they saw there's a higher imitation that needs to be done. That their earthly father will let them down. But our heavenly father never does. Imitate him. Encourage one another. Yes with godly living. We should provide examples for one another. As fellow struggling pilgrims. To be sure. But our eyes have got to be on Jesus. Now here's a caution here. And this is. A serious, serious matter. And I I don't want to rush it. I I know we're on borrowed time. I've already preached one sermon. This is one of those Baptist days where you get two, I guess. But there's a caution here. And it's, it's extremely important that we understand these next two verses. These two verses are frightening. But they're also gracious. And so there's a caution here against a lifestyle of laxity. And look in verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this. There's an emphasis here. This is an irrefutable fact that cannot be changed or denied is what he's saying. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those are some chilling words. Let's figure out what they mean. I'm not going to water it down. But but we are going to be clear and we're going to be truthful here. There's a certain unassailable reality to embrace here. You can be sure of this, he says. Do you see that in verse 5? This is an unchangeable fact. The statement is, is being made and worded this way so that we will understand this is the truth without any argument, without any caveat. It stands just as it is. Let us not be guilty of explaining it away. He says here, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure. We've already covered sexually immoral. If you're not sure what that means, that's the gamut from premarital sex to homosexuality, to adultery, to pornography, to any kind of sexual perversion, prostitution, anything that you can imagine or think on, it covers it all. It's a blanket statement. Anything other than what God has prescribed. Any lifestyle that's anything other than what God has prescribed for sexuality. It's in that word. The word impure refers to being unclean. That's the next word. And then he talks about poor life. And then he talks about greed again. covetousness. What is he saying here? The principle is this. If these things are your lifestyle, then you are not saved. And it's not my judgment. No, no. No, no. Don't do that to me. I'm explaining the word. If I misexplain it, then you can let me know. But look at the scripture. That everyone, not there's no exception, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No inheritance. Zero. That means, let's put it on the other side, they're going to hell. Now, the Bible says... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, let let me help you a little bit here now. There are people here who have participated in sexual immorality. It's just a fact. People here who are impure in their talk, their thoughts, their life. People here are eaten up with greed, chasing the American dream. That is their God. What other people with money think about them is their driving force. Those people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But, but let me help you with a word. You got your Bible? Are you ready? This is extremely important. There's a two-letter word here. Is. Everyone who is. It doesn't say, thank God, everyone who's ever committed these sins. It's referring to people who practice this. This is just how they live. They practice these things. And the Bible has made it clear that if we are Christians, if we belong to the Lord, then at some point we're going to repent. We can't live this way. It will eat you up. It will blacken your soul. If you're a Christian... This kind of living will disturb you and disgust you to the point that you, like the son that was the prodigal and he came to himself when he was in the pigsty and said, i got to go home to my father. That's what you'll do as a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you'll just stay in it. There'll be times when you practice it with, with gusto You'll have regret, and you'll fade away from it a little bit. And then a time will come, you'll come back. And it just becomes your habit. It becomes your lifestyle. Now, the person is going to ask me, how many times can I sin and still be considered a Christian? What's the limit? If you're asking that kind of question, you better be afraid. Because you are demonstrating a heart that is not interested in repentance. If you're a Christian, you're saying something like this, I've done it one too many times. Not how many times can I do it and still go to heaven. Now, these things don't send you to hell. I want you to understand that. Sexual immorality is not what sends you to hell. But sexual immorality and the practice of it And to continue to practice it in your life. And the impurity and the greed. These are evidences of people that do not love God. They're not imitating Him as beloved children. They're not doing that. And so, they demonstrate what they really are. Out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts and murders and adultery and so on. Is what Jesus said. It's just demonstrating what's in the heart. The Christian doesn't say, how much can I sin? The Christian asks, how can I keep from sinning? Or at least, how can I sin less? If we practice sin as a lifestyle, we don't repent, we don't stop it, then it is true of us, as the Bible says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. Now, let me give you a caution Be careful here of deciding what you think about someone, whether they are a Christian or not, based entirely upon what you know of their behavior. Be careful of that. Christians are capable of any kind of behavior. Trust me. If I haven't done it, I've fought it. Christians are capable of any kind of behavior. And they're capable of repeating it. Some people are given to certain sins... As Christians, and they will commit them. They will repent. And they may go on for a long while. And then they may do it again. And then they'll repent. This is no perfect science. There's no perfect sanctification, guys, until we get to heaven. We're all still in the process. Our bread's not quite done and all of that. So be careful about doing that. But here's the fact. When we go to a brother or sister that claim to be a brother sister in Christ and we either officially as church representatives or you as a friend say to them i know what you're doing and you've got to stop it right now if they are broken and contrite they're probably a believer if they want to change and ask will you help me i got to change i don't want to be this way anymore probably a christian but if they blow you off and say mind your own business Probably not. Okay? Now, it is true that sometimes as Christians, when we're in sin, we first get busted, we're a little angry. That's true. You may have to give the person a little time. But if they just never turn away from it, if they never get broken over their sin, they're not thinking about Christ and what He's done for them on the cross. They're just thinking about themselves. They're ignoring and and presuming upon the grace of God. They're they're stomping on the cross of Christ and crucifying him anew. That person does not know Jesus. When a person refuses to repent, makes no effort, then we can assume that they do not love the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a a sinister deception to reject. Let's finish it up. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Do you see that in verse 6? What are the empty words that's being told to them? The empty words that are being told to them about sin are things like this. Well, we're all human after all. Well, we all make mistakes. You know, it's just my personality. How about this one? I have a disease. God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. God is love. He'll forgive you. Don't, don't worry about it. The issue is this. If you live sinfully as a practice, then you're lost and without Christ and the Bible calls you, here in verse 6, a son, a child of disobedience. Not a child of God. Not a beloved child, verse 1. But you see that we have bookends here. The first bookend is a beloved child. And what that looks like. And what a beloved child does not do. The other end of it is a child of disobedience, a son of disobedience, that is, someone whose, whose sin has produced, disobedience has produced, given birth to this human. Not God, but sin is this one's father. And what happens is the wrath of God is coming upon those who live that way. So don't fall for these trite, comforting sayings. We're all human, we all make mistakes. The issue is if you live sinfully you will die under the wrath of God. The problem with a lot of preaching today is they don't tell you this but instead they give you empty words of false comfort. God help us to never do that. We don't ever want to be mean spirited to people but we do want to be courageous enough and loving enough to tell them the truth. And not only then, but to tell ourselves the truth as well. The love of God is our motivation. This is, what, this is what moves us here. For the Christian, it's not the fear of hell that if we mess up we're going to hell. The fear of hell is not what moves the Christian. That should move the lost person. So we're not in danger of hell. What moves us is that God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. And Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's substitutionary atonement. And a fragrant offering and a sacrifice, a death sacrifice, a slaughter in our place. That's what moves us. I think about what Isaac Watts wrote. In his hymn, see from his head, his hands, and his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. His love, so amazing, so divine, listen to this. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Why is it that we are dedicated to being imitators of God? Because that kind of love demands it. There's no other response that's appropriate to the love of God than this. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Let me caution some of you here today. This is not a motivational speech for you to go out and live better. It's not that. If you try that, you have misunderstood totally. You're missing. Don't skip the foundation. The foundation is this. Have you humbly come to God and said to him, I have been God of my own life and I turn loose of that today. I am a sinner, rebellious sinner. I have nothing, God, that I can do to make up for it. But I see what you've done. You have given your son. Who willingly, voluntarily laid his life down on the cross for sinners like me. He absorbed your wrath. He absorbed my punishment for me. He rose from the grave to prove that he's Lord and Christ. The only response that I know is to believe on him and to love him. And I start doing that today. That transaction must happen before you can even begin to think about verses 3 through 6. You must become, by the new birth, one of God's children. To as many as received Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on His name. If that has never been your decision if you're looking at your life based upon this scripture and see that your lifestyle is mostly just sin and selfishness, the evidence is clear. You may be able to fool the rest of us, but you cannot fool God. But God has opened a door of mercy and pardon today for you. For whatever reason, He has opened that door and He stands at the threshold and says, Come to me. Come to me. I will save you. Come to me, I will turn you into a new creature. Come to me, I'll make you one of my children. Come to me, sinner, come to me. Do not sit there in your pride. I beg you in the name of Jesus, do not sit there and hide behind your religion. Do not sit there and hide behind your church membership. For the love of God, get up and come to Jesus. Dear Christian, we have failed our community, and our world by not imitating our God very well. May God have mercy upon me for being a faulty imitation. May God help you to be the right kind of imitation. May God burn it in our hearts, Christians, that because of His love for us, we've got to love Him back by imitating Him like little children. May God change our hearts that we would become those kinds of people for the sake of His name and for the salvation of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You've been so gracious and good to us. We cannot even begin to explain or understand how great Your love is. And your grace and your kindness toward us. And the mercy that you extend in Jesus toward us. Lord, those of us that have come to Christ. And maybe our lives have become polluted by the world. And our imitation of you is so faint. So unclear. That the world cannot see you through us. Oh dear God, would you convict us as your followers. Holy Spirit, would you stir in our hearts that on the basis of the love you have for us that we would love you back by imitating you as little children. Father, I pray for those who do not yet know Christ. They're not your children. They're children of disobedience. They're children of the devil. Their lives are dominated by sinfulness. They have moments when they do things that are good. But what's churning in them always is an affection for the world and a love for that which is sin. I pray, Father, today that by the Spirit of God, you would stir in that person's life, stir in their heart, that they would look to Christ and see Him as the treasure and get up out of the trash pile and come to the riches of a King. God, I pray that you'd work in their life. There are those here that are adults. They've been attending church for years. And they've never had a hard experience with Jesus. I pray, Father, you work in their life. I pray, Father, for those that are maybe our guests here today. And it's been a long time since they've heard the gospel. Lord, would you work in their life today? Father, we know that you love sinners. Draw them to yourself by the power of of the Spirit of God through the word preached that they may meet the Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.